0: When you're asked to speak on your personal reflections on life and ministry, it means you're old. <laughs> uh, Easter Sunday, two days ago, I turned 60. 60 is very, very old. <laughs> I remember when my wife's father died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 54, and I said on that occasion, well, at least he lived a full, long life. (laughs) Um, So it's really just unbelievable to me to think that I'm 60 years old. Uh, when Bill, Bill Clinton was president, um, and then in the years uh, shortly following thereafter, I remember th- that he said that uh, for most of his life, he was always the youngest guy in the room. And then all of a sudden, he was the oldest guy. And when I was called independent, I was 30, 31 years old. And I was always the youngest guy in the room, by far, uh, in fact, when our firstborn was born into the manse at Independent Presbyterian, that was the first time there had ever been a child born into uh, the ma- the manse. Um, I was so much younger than everyone who was around. And now, all of a sudden, here I am at the Twin Lakes Fellowship, and I'm just about, except for Dr. Kelly, uh, <laughs> and a, and a couple of others, I'm one of the older guys, and I'm being asked about lessons of life and ministry. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll do the best that I can with the subject. I want to say that the goal that I have had in my ministry, if I can summarize it, I think it is that the congregation would know, love, and serve our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the God-man Jesus Christ. And that would be the summary of, of what I think the goal of the ministry has been. And so what I want to talk about are those things that I have found important in the fulfilling of those goals. I'm not going to really go through the elements of worship or any of that. I think I've done that plenty of times with this group and written at length about them and how I personally arrived at those convictions and where I find support for those convictions in Scripture itself, in the history of the church, in the Reformed tradition, and in practical effect, uh, so I'm really going to talk about those things. I've done that plenty of times. Uh, instead, speak more broadly about some of the ideals um, and some of the principles that I see as being in, important in what's now been 32 years of ordained ministry and 28 years, completed 28 years, now I'm in my 29th year in Savannah at the Independent Presbyterian Church. And for you younger guys, I just want to say, When I say I've been there 29 years, it is just not quite believable to me. And as you marry and you have children, the pace at which life passes by accelerates. Every year it gets faster and faster. Uh, Time, you want to grab it and hold on to it, and it slips through your fingers, and it's uh, passing uh, by so quickly. And it's just a reminder that we are... um, Creatures made for eternity but trapped in time and and frustrated by it. Um, So let me me proceed. Number one, I want to say something about the importance of the ideal of the long-term ministry. Uh, When I graduated from seminary, Jim Boyce had been at 10th Press for 13 years. Willie Still had been... At the Gilcomson South Church in Aberdeen for 36 years, which would then eventually become 52 years. Boyce would be at 10th for 30 years. Uh, they were my models for expository preaching, along with John MacArthur. Uh, MacArthur has been at Grace Community Church in Panorama City, California, for 46 years. So they were my models for expository preaching, but they were also my models for longevity in the ministry. I want to commend it to you and commend the ideal of going to a church with the intention of staying there for a lifetime. What that enables you to do is to, is to marry, baptize, and bury generation after generation in that congregation. Uh, you are uh, able in that uh, context to preach the whole counsel of God and the whole Christ uh, who's found in all the scriptures. Um, You're able to provide continuity theologically and in terms of philosophy of ministry. The church is able to avoid the uh, disruption of uh, a pastor who resigns the searching for the new pastor and then adjusting to the peculiarities and the idiosyncrasies of the new man. When I had been uh, at Independent for just a few years, we invited J.I. Packer to come and speak And I had studied uh, with Dr. Packer for two years in England, and I regard him and Alec Motier as probably the two most godly men I've ever known. And so we invited him to come, and he led some services in Savannah, and he was at my uh, Sunday dining room table, and we were in a very rough point in the ministry in Savannah in those early years and um, in the course of the conversation, he said to me, with my wife sitting there, well, of course you can't stay there for less than ten years. You can't do anything in less than ten years. We'd been there about three years at that point. And I just saw the countenance of my wife just <laughs> um, at the prospect of having to be there for what would, would have been at that point seven or eight Uh, more years. But he was right. uh, To build a proper foundation, to build the edifice upon that foundation, it takes time. I understand that in the providence of God, one may be led in another direction, but I think that to bring the ideal uh, to the pastorate is important. It's crucial uh, to, uh, to longevity in the ministry in a single place. Secondly, second would emphasize the importance of a clear philosophy of ministry. I would urge you to begin the ministry with a clear vision of what you want to do and why you want to do it. In other words, have a biblically rooted, theologically driven uh, philosophy of ministry. Let it begin as a candidate. I'm uh, uh, astonished, really, at some of the mismatches that have taken place uh, even in the last 100 years or so. You'll be familiar with some of them, no, no doubt, in Britain, both, in, uh, both there and in this country, where you just scratch your head. You think, what were they thinking when they replaced their pastor with him who, who it was coming theologically or in terms of philosophy of ministry from, you would think, 180 degrees from the predecessor, his predecessor. What were they thinking? How did they manage to do that? So I would say as a candidate, and this is what I attempted to do, I think that there are any number of things that I could be accused of and there are many, many mistakes that I made, but this was not one of them. I came and I let them know exactly who I was and exactly what I intended to do, what would be the shape of the ministry, what would be the priorities in the ministry, where where I would place my emphasis, the kind of sermons that I would preach. In fact, the first sermon I preached uh, for... For the church was a very upbeat, optimistic sermon. The second sermon was on the cleansing of the temple. (laughs) I just thought, you know, I'm just going to let it fly because they need to know what they're going to get. I'm not going to waffle around. I'm going to preach the text. I'm going to preach it as God has given it to us. Um, I wanted them to know what they were getting into. Uh, I think we should let them know the kind of music that. that uh, we're going to prefer, um, congregational song, that is, and what the mood of the service will be that we intend to inculcate, and then stick to it, this clear philosophy. If it's rooted in universals, then you won't be driven by every wind of pragmatism, by the what works question that so many... uh, Ministries are driven by, but concerning, which I think that we need to be immune. Yes, uh, we need to to learn as we go and make adjustments as they are necessary. But I see these as tweaking of a philosophy rather than overhauling it. And I think that if we bring a clear philosophy of ministry into the church, uh, then over time the peace and unity of the church Um, will emerge. The leavers will go because they don't share the vision. The stayers will share in that philosophy and they will be happy. Um, Third, I want to um, bring to our attention the importance of indoctrinating. Put in place a programmatic means of convincing The membership of the biblical and theological foundation of your message and ministry. Uh, You might be surprised to learn that when I came to Independent Presbyterian on January 1st, 1987, there was not one person in that congregation who was self-consciously reformed. Not one. Zero. Uh, There were some um, uh, Columbia Bible College uh, broad evangelical types. There was a whole liberal segment of uh, the congregation. There was another, probably a third, were just indifferent. So you had the indifferent, you had the liberals, and you had the Columbia evangelical. Nobody got it about the Reformed faith, and nobody understood anything about uh, a Reformed uh, philosophy uh, of ministry. There were no elements of reformed worship in place, that is, any of the distinctives. In other words, there wasn't any um, history of which I was aware of a, of, a, of a lectio continua reading of Scripture, lectio continua or expository sequential preaching, no psalm singing, um, no, no um, full diet of, of uh, prayer. Uh, the sacraments were administered quarterly. Uh, so the, the things that I see as being distinctive about Reformed worship, um, there were, none of those were in place at that time. So I had, I had a, a job to do, uh, uh, that, that being to reform the church, to bring the church to, uh, to the place where it understood the gospel from the perspective of the Reformed church, our gospel and understood our way of doing ministry, and to do that without dividing the church in the process. So to reform it without dividing it. Um, in addition, there was, there, there, was no real, there was no church in our region to which I could point that I could say it was a model for what it was that we wanted to do. And one of the most popular doctors in Savannah... Who was a friend of mine those early years? Said that he had gone into Independent Presbyterian a couple years before I got there. He said they turned down the lights before the preacher, as a preacher got up to preach, creating a perfect mood for sleeping. And he he said about the church that it was the sorriest church he'd ever seen in his entire life. And the candidating Sunday uh, um, in August of 1986. There were a hundred and I think 35 people there on a Sunday morning in this giant edifice in downtown Savannah. So there was a, a program of indoctrination that needed to go on and yet I needed to be subtle enough about it that they didn't realize they were being indoctrinated. So what did that mean? What, how do we do that? Number one, the worship services were crucial in, in that respect. I think that reformed Our message and our ministry is a self-authenticating one. I think that there's a, well, of course, quality about what we do. Of course we should read the Bible. Of course we should sing psalms. Um, Of course we should preach verse by verse uh, through passages of Scripture. Of course we should have a a substantial emphasis upon prayer. Of course we should regularly administer the, the sacraments. And I think in the doing of them... There, there is that kind of, uh, well, yeah, well, that's right. That is what we should have been doing all along quality. We have pulled our congregation in the past. And more than any other single factor, they will point. They pointed to the worship services themselves being um, that which was most convincing to them of what we were preaching and 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 about the way we were going about doing the ministry of the church. Fervent expository preaching. Urgency in prayer. um, Grand, even uh, congregational singing. Uh, The regular, for us that means monthly. It did mean quarterly, now monthly, um, administration of the sacraments. These things were, they, they carried their own convincing authority and power. So the worship services themselves uh, were crucial uh, for that in convincing the congregation of what we were doing and protecting us from the temptation to move either in a high liturgical or a contemporary direction. Secondly, inquirer's classes. All new members were expected, we fought over the word required or expected, Session to my dismay decided it would be expected, uh, so we've added I don't know, you know, fifteen hundred members over the years, and all but two of them took the inquirers class. So anyway, uh, all new members essentially were expected to take an inquirers class in which I develop a pyramid of truth. Um, it's a very doctrinally heavy uh, inquirers class. Why? Because I'm going for conviction. We introduce them to the people of the church, and we, we do that, that as well. But the main thing is, I want them convinced about what we are doing or to convince them that they don't belong here, that their convictions are really somewhere else. And they're going to take vows. And you take vows, you take them um, from an informed perspective, right? You get married, you take vows, you, you're informed about the one you're going to marry. You join a church. Vows are, are very weighty things to do before God. You need to know what you're getting into, so I start at the bottom of the pyramid with the church Catholic and talk about the Apostles' Creed and the history of the church so that they see the distinctives that we're going to talk about are, are understood in the context of a, of a substantial breadth of, a, breadth of agreement between the three major branches of the church, the Roman Catholic, the Eastern Orthodox, and all the branches of Protestantism. We all agree about the creed, essentially, so that means when we start to talk about where we disagree in our distinctives, it's built on a foundation of agreement. Now what that does then is that means that as I start to get more Protestant and Reformed, they don't think we're a cult. They don't think this is something weird, like they're going to think in San Francisco. But even there, if you, if you indoctrinate them properly, if you begin to show what foundation we're building on, uh, then they'll understand it. No, this isn't some bizarre new... Um, um, theology or, or ministry that's arrived on the scene. No, this is rooted in history. This is, this is the way Christians have done things over the century. So then we go from the church Catholic to the church Protestant where we, st- we expound the five m- sola mottos of the Reformation. So we go through Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, God's glory alone. Those are the distinctives that set Protestantism apart from Roman Catholicism. And that all Protestants, proper Protestants, agree. Then we go and we start to get more narrow. And so we then talk about Reformed worship and Reformed view of sanctification and justification and Reformed piety and so forth so that we have this pyramid where we are getting more selective and distinctive and narrow as we go but always on this very broad foundation which is reassuring to people that we're not saying we're right about everything and everybody else is wrong. No, we're saying we all agree down here. Now we're refining and showing you where it is that we have distinctive beliefs that we are important for reasons A, B, C, and D. So, number one, indoctrinate through the worship services. Number two, indoctrinate through the inquirer's classes. Number three, officer training. So, first year, I asked the session to approve of an officer training class, 13 weeks of study of the Westminster Confession of Faith in our first 25 years, 152 men went through that 13-week class. Those men are the backbone of our congregation. And I believe if I were to drop dead tomorrow, and heaven knows at 60 I'm closer to that moment than ever I was before... But if I were to drop dead tomorrow, I believe our church would not miss a beat. I think they would know exactly the kind of person that they need to go and get to be their new senior senior minister. Fourth, right. I took seriously John Stott's recommendation that I heard at a TSF, Theological Student Fellowship, meeting in London back in 1978 to write out... Um, your Sunday morning sermon every week. And so I've done that uh, for the last 30 years. Every Sunday morning sermon, I write it out. Uh, A couple of things to say about that. Uh, One, the more you write, the the better you get at it. I mean, it's just like any other kind of discipline or exercise. The more you do it, the more you're able to improve on it. Uh, Another thing, every year I write a 500-page book. Most of it's completely unpublishable, but nevertheless, some of it is. Some of of it has application outside of my own congregation. Most of it's just for our people, so they can they can get a a booklet of the previous Sunday morning, and they can go back and look. And if something sparked their interest, or they want to review it again, and or they want to look at the text that we're referred to, they can go back and they can look at the printed copy of it. It's a manuscript, not a transcript manuscript transcripts are brutal Have you ever seen a transcript of your sermon you want to burn it immediately <laughs> right i mean there's all these uh, parenthetical thoughts and broken sentences and incomplete sentences they're just brutal to read so it's a manuscript that's that's readable that is studyable if that's even a word uh, right for your congregation most of it won't have like i say it won't have application outside of your congregation but for them you're their preacher You know, put it in their hands. Uh, Two sermons, I I couldn't do that. One is more than enough. I couldn't go to number two. We couldn't write out a second one. But one, then newsletters. We have a monthly newsletter. That's a very valuable tool in a more journalistic fashion, daily newspaper fashion, to write about the issues that are going on in the church or in your life or any variety of things. Tremendous variety in newsletters, but um, just a way of, of reinforcing... Uh, what we're teaching um, and then books um, most well almost without exception I guess uh, worshipping with Calvin is the exception everything else I've written has been sermon series parables those are sermons um, traditional, the case for traditional Protestantism those are the solas those are sermons basically everything is sermons and so you know I revise, and 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 revise, and, and, you know. And then, eventually, some of it is worthy of being looked at beyond your own congregation, maybe of service to the rest of the church. And, surprise, surprise, sometimes it is. So, right. Uh, Fifth, uh, we used, for years, Reformation and Heritage Sundays to our advantage. I inherited um, Reformation and and Scottish, rather, Georgia and Scottish Heritage Sundays, so thought well, this is what i 've got to work with, so Georgia Heritage Sunday, what do I talk about? George Whitfield John Wesley, the early pastors uh, in Savannah, and I talked about Whitfield 's revivals and the great Awakening and the gospel that they preached uh, Scottish heritage Man, I started. Um, And then Reformation Heritage, I started uh, producing or or reproducing historic liturgies. Orders of service, Calvin's in Geneva, John Knox's. Um, John Knox's liturgy, that was a shock to the crowd that would show up on Scottish Heritage Sunday. Especially Knox's prayer of confession of sin. Uh, You know, the extensive lamenting of our sin. It was a, you know, a, a jolt. Uh, to the crowd, half of which we were tempted to give breathalyzer tests to on (laughs) our Scottish Heritage Sunday, Sunday mornings. But for us, this is a way of providing perspective and liturgical sanity in an era of worship chaos and disorder. Was to provide some historical reference points that you um, that are provided by these Reformation era orders of service. A sixth Sunday school classes on a typical Sunday, at least until recently, I backed off a of Sunday night. Some, but Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, three times. Sunday school is not a sermon. I get to preach twice on Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. So what's Sunday school? Sunday school is when I'm there with an open Bible with a subject, and now you get to ask your questions. Now you get to interact with me. No sense doing a third sermon as far as I'm concerned. Now's a time when they get to fire their questions. And I enjoy that. I like thinking on my feet and having to respond to them. And so I've, I love being in the Sunday school, even though... It would be more relaxing to to prepare further for for the Sunday morning message or the Sunday evening message. I like, I love having that opportunity. An open Bible, a subject that I'm bringing to them, but where there's a lot of interaction and they can get their questions asked. Um, And they they can express their annoyances and their fears about why are we so narrow and why do we think... We're right and everyone else is wrong? And why are Presbyterians so arrogant? And all those questions get asked. And I tell them it's because we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> all right, so the sum of this is this is a multi pronged approach to convince the congregation of what we believe and what we practice so as to ensure the peace and harmony and unity of the church. All right, fourth, respect the existing culture of the church. I think that that is very important. I think we're doing something of a high-wire act when we begin a ministry in a church because we want to reform the church But we don't want to run roughshod over those who are responsible for what is currently taking place in that church. And remember, every program, every coat of paint, every stitch of carpeting has a name on it. Somebody's responsible for the decorum, um, no, the decor, uh, responsible for the program, Everything's got a name on it. Everything's got an ego attached to it. So you come into a church, it's important that you not only reform it, but that you respect the existing culture of the church. Jim Baird um, said to me, Jim Baird is really my go-to pastor when I need counsel. I hope you all know Jim Baird. Um, But... uh, It'd been a great man of God in our generation, but I always I always went to Jim Baird when I needed some counsel. He told me when you get to the church, don't change anything for five years, and basically that's true. The public face of the ministry didn't change. I tweaked it, so they were used to having the Scripture read. I just made sure they read a lot, and they had sermons, but I just made sure they were uh, expository sermons and. They were singing out of the hymnal. I just made sure they were singing psalms out of the hymnal as well as hymns. And in the hymn book, if you remember the old Burgundy hymn book, there were about 60 psalms. Well, you know, I could work with it. So the public face didn't change. And then amongst the people who didn't much like me, they didn't care if we had an inquirer's class or officer training. didn't touch them. It didn't impact them. So, you know, let the kid do what he wants. So I wasn't messing with them. Um, so there, there really wasn't the complaint that I was sort of changing all the traditions and undermining the whole prior history of the, of the church. Most of it remained untouched. And the, 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 um, the alterations were, 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 were subtle. I remember uh, the church administrator at the time asked me in a very confrontational way, What are you going to do to make this church grow? I thought, I'm in charge here, and that's an impertinent question. That's not what I said. What I said was, um, nothing. We're going to conduct services, preach, and pray that God will bless the ordinary ministry of the church. That's all that we're going to do, and I'm in it. I wasn't bringing in a bunch of programs and a bunch of changes and overthrowing um, the accepted ways of doing things. I was very careful about that. Uh, the C word, Calvin, did not get mentioned from the pulpit for five years. Now, in the course of Lectio with Preaching, uh, the C subject uh, came up all the time. It can't. You preach through the Bible, you're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God. So it came up. I just didn't put a label on it. Uh, It came up naturally. It came out without any connection to an agenda. So realize that every church has a culture. I think that in recent years we have seen some men go to churches and drive a bulldozer over sacred and familiar and comforting ways of doing things, Uh, a bulldozer over the existing culture of that church. And the results have been devastating. There have been a couple of churches that were among the largest and, in my view, most successful churches in the whole uh, PCA, Uh, extremely evangelistic churches, uh, uh, um, very rigorously discipling churches, one of which I was quoted as saying, and I did say this because I believed it, that I thought it was the healthiest church in the whole PCA had pastors come in, and the whole place just blow to pieces. Um, and my interpretation of events would be um, that what happened was there was no respect for what had gone before. There's no respect for the, the existing culture of the church. And, and as a result, the church was divided into those who loved and supported the previous ministry or ministries and the the existing culture of that church and, and, and those who uh, were ready for, for change. Uh, respect the existing culture of the church. Remember Zwingli himself, though he started preaching expositorily on January 1st of, of 1519. It was a full seven years later before he began to conduct the services in the vernacular He maintained a Latin service. German German sermon, but Latin service. He moved slowly. Respect the the existing culture of the church. Number five, use the session. Again, Jim Baird, which reminds me. Give me back to Jim Baird. I think it's important to get advice from older ministers. And I'm not just saying that now because I'm an older minister. (laughs) Sixty years old. This is what I did when I was young. And I... Again, I, there's a lot of things I did wrong, but one of them was when I was in trouble and troubled and needed help, I got on the phone with Dr. Baird or Mr. Still. In fact, um, I got to tell you this one. This was at the worst part. We, the first years at Independent, I call it the Seven Years' War because really it was bad. And at the lowest point, um, where I could hardly... Call uh, advisors and even speak to them. I called Mr. Still in Aberdeen, Scotland, and I told him what was happening. And he said to me, he listened to the whole thing, I described it all. He said, Teddy, you know, Scots can't pronounce their R's. Teddy, I'm T E D D Y to them over there. He said, Teddy, you must denounce them from the pulpit. He said, They don't think you've got the courage to do it. But I know that you do. So I did. Not by name, but I did the next Sunday. And I told them that they had to make a choice, that they had to either fire me or follow me, but they couldn't fight me. You know, you're supposed to honor those who are in the position of the minister, so you can fire me, that's legitimate. Get rid of me if you don't want me here. You can follow me, but you can't continue to fight me, so make up your minds. That was kind of a denunciation from the pulpit. Of a form. And it did bring things to a head. And one of the old, old men of the church with a cane came waddling into our session meeting that next Monday night. And he stood there and said, What am I hearing about all this trouble you old men are causing for our young minister? And he was an old Savannah blue blood. And I mean, that carried some weight. And it did bring things to a head, and basically, it didn't end the war, but it did bring a securing of my position there, um, thereafter. So, back to the point. Use the session. Jim Baird taught me to always blame the session. <laughs> All decisions are the decisions of the session. They are not your decision. You always say, Your session has decided that. That way you're spreading the guilt, (laughs) spreading the responsibility. And let me say as well, I have learned to appreciate the genius of a deliberative body. I cannot tell you how many times I have gone into a session meeting fired up and gung-ho that we have to do A and we have to do it now. And we get into the session room and there's this whole argument taking place that no, we don't need to do A, we need to do C and I'm dismayed and can't believe what's happening and over the course, as the discussion um, continues, I, I find I'm moving. And the more that gets said, the more I realize I've not really understood all of the issues. I thought I had my finger on the pulse of the congregation, but I don't. And so by the time our deliberation is over, we're not doing C and we're not doing A, but we are doing B, and it's a much better decision than we had envisioned at the outset. That There is, a, a in a properly run deliberative body, there, 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 there is a genius to it. Uh, appreciate that and make use of your session so that you can spread the credit as well as the blame uh, for the decisions. Number six, prepare for conflict. Like I say, we had a seven years war. It's the one thing that I would say seminary and lifetime in church did not prepare me for. I really had no idea of, of the the level of hostility and vehemence and cruelty. Uh, that could be expressed in church fights. Um, now, why will there be conflict? Let me suggest a couple of things. One, the gospel itself offends. Uh, the country club set will be very offended at the gospel. An undiluted gospel is going to offend them. First Corinthians 1. Paul teaches us that. Um, the evangelistic folk who are accustomed to the sermons being directed at those people will also take offense by at a full expository preaching. I grew up in a church where every sermon was directed at other people. It was at the unsaved. And we came every week hoping that somebody would respond to these stanzas of Just As I Am. Because that's who was being preached to. Well, Mr. Still, you know, in work of the pastor, talks about the, the, the people in the church going mad with rage when the gospel guns were turned on the church members. Even the the event, the evangelical folks, who were who grown accustomed to all of the preaching, being intended to some for someone else. Um, so, the gospel itself offends. Um, secondly, believe it or not, growth will offend some people. In my first year at Independent, we had forty-four people join in the first two inquirers classes, total of forty-four. The third class, we had twenty somewhere between twenty and thirty people in the class. And like I say, there are 130 people there at my candidating sermon. So can you do the math in terms of a congregational meeting if they want to fire me? So we're now nine months into it and they're starting to scratch their heads about whether or not they made a mistake. And there was about a 50% crowd that was going to vote with me on anything and then you had all these new people that had come in. Now we're up to about 70 So they were getting worried about it. I'll never forget. I'm teaching the first session of the inquirer's class and one of the committee chairman elders who was also a trustee threw open the back doors at the end of the class, looked in and saw 20 to 30 people and I saw his shoulders visibly slump. He went, why? Because he knew they'd lost control of the church already. Nine months into it, they'd lost control of the church. Um, what was what was the issue? It wasn't doctrine. It wasn't ministry. It was all about power and who was going to run the church and who was going to control the church. Prepare for conflict. The gospel is going to offend growth because growth ties into control and who's going to run the church, who is going to have power in the church. That will also bring conflict. There are inevitable Personal conflicts in the church, but one thing about long term ministry I want to say is that if you stay for a long time, many, if not all, of those conflicts will be worked out. Now, I have an, the elder who was the most hostile elder of them all has never left. I thought he was going to be a glorious subtraction at one point, but he stayed. <laughs> Now there's a begrudging respect. And when I show up for his birthday, he comes over to my table and sits there the whole time and talks to me. Um, There's an elder in the church with whom we had emotional trauma about 19 years ago. I can be pretty precise about it. Emotional trauma, very difficult for us for a period of time. And I, I remember his wife rocking our youngest, Benjamin, in the Nursery and walking by and and seeing tears rolling down her eyes uh, because of the stress caused by our trauma. Today, he is almost to a fault the most supportive elder in the congregation. It took some years to work past that. The conflicts are inevitable. The great things about longevity is it gives you time to work those things out. I don't think the New Testament... Intends that because there's a conflict that we would leave the church and go somewhere else. That's not, there's no escape hatch envisioned in the church by the apostles. Problems are envisioned, but you're meant to work them out in the congregation, not flee from them, not go somewhere else in order to resolve those conflicts. And then, in addition, there are um, disappointments, in term connecting disappointments with some of these conflicts. Disappointment. There are some people in the church who will never, ever encourage you. Not once will they ever give you an encouraging word. It's amazing to me. They've been out there for 20 years. They've never said one positive thing. Sometimes I wonder, why, why are you still here? Um, and then every, about every five years or so, they'll come up and they'll gripe about something. So I haven't heard from you for five years No matter what, nothing positive, and here's the gripe. It's just in the nature of things. Then, also, it's been a a very regrettable pattern that in many ways, and I've confirmed this with other ministers, the people with remarkable frequency, the people to whom we have given the most of ourselves, more time, more energy, more support, have been the people that have turned on us. I can't explain it. I don't know why it happens. I don't know how it works. I'm just saying. I'm just an observation. It seems to me that there, there's something to it. That's been a pattern that we've had to work, uh, had to work with. I, um, had one particular difficult point. Um, Emily said, she's given somewhat to to plunging to this level of despair. Everybody is against us. We need to get out of here. We need to leave and go somewhere else. Everybody here hates us. So I said, okay. Where's the church directory? Grab the directory. So okay, let's go through it. You tell me everyone in this church who's against us or hates us. So I went through page after page. I marked them all. Went through. Okay, let's count them up. Went back through. It was about forty people. So how many people are in church on Sunday morning? 400. Okay, that's 10%. There's always going to be 10% of the people who are unhappy. That's just a given. That's in the nature of things. That's not too bad. We got 90% of them on our side who appreciate and love us. So, So, how about some perspective on the problem you can count on conflict. you can just about take it to the bank that ten percent of the people will be unhappy for one reason or another. Another word of uh, in- encouragement for you, perhaps um, <laughs> the person who left, who was the angriest person to ever. Visibly show her anger with our ministry. She was furious at what she thought was legalism. And, oh, she went on and on. So much so, when the elder and I left, her husband walked out and she, he just said, I had no idea about any of this. Several years later, she rejoined the church. And she said, that was all about me, not about you. And I would say almost every other Sunday, she walks out, her eyes red with tears. She so loves the worship of our church and the ministry of the church. And all that to say, don't burn the bridges. I'm not saying I've done this perfectly, but I do think it's important to keep the doors open for people to return. Don't. Burn the bridge behind them. Be be ready to reconcile, forgive, and restore uh, people to the church. All right, I have just a minute or so left. Uh, Number seven, staff can make the importance of staff can make or break you. Number one, hire staff promptly. It's like a business decision. You add employees at the right time, they pay for themselves. They increase your business. That's the business model. I think it has some application. For us in the church, and I would say about myself, I have been too slow to add working full-time hands to the staff of the church. I think it takes more people to minister to God's people today than it did a generation ago. I think it has to do with the whole cultural collapse out there right now. It takes a lot of hands-on coffee shop time. It does. Um, and a tip of the hat to Brad Waller. He's taught me a lot about that, about the importance of one-on-one ministry with people, spending time in the coffee shops, uh, just one-on-one time with people. I can see that's probably not my gift, but I, we need, I need to surround myself with people who, who are able to do that sort of thing. So hire staff promptly. Numbers two, fire staff promptly. I think I have been too slow to fire. And we had um, uh, a man that we hired to do a certain task in the church. And five minutes, I'm not kidding, five minutes into it, I knew we'd made a mistake. And it was like three years later we finally let him go. I just didn't have, I'm a coward when it comes to that sort of thing. But looking back, I think it's, there's so much more wisdom in realizing that, that this is not good for him and this is not good for you. He doesn't have the gifts for this. He's in the wrong position. That's awkward and difficult for him as well as it being awkward and difficult uh, for you. And then retain faithful staff. Character is king. you got reliable, faithful people of integrity. Hang on to them. You know, the biblical story of the tortoise and the hare um, is a... Come on. There's a lot to be said for the tortoise. The hare's got a lot of flash. The tortoise in the end gets the job done. Um, Ninth, family. Family is the proving ground for our qualifications of the ministry. Lose your family and you lose your ministry. If your wife walks out on you, your ministry is over. Right? So, family on the one hand, must not interfere with the core elements of your ministry. If you were a lawyer, your wife wouldn't be able to say, Honey, come home and do this for me, run this errand for me, to handle this for me. Don't let the family interfere with the core elements of teaching, preaching, and leading the congregation. But church responsibilities must not interfere with family duties either. So I made it a point that I would have family devotions every day. I made it a point that I would be there for breakfast and dinner every day, two meals a day. I made it a point that I would be at all of my children's recitals and athletic events. In fact, one time I got back from a Westminster Seminary board meeting, and I was in the Charlotte airport at midnight, and my flight to Savannah was canceled. And I called Emily to tell her I was going to be checking into a hotel and getting a morning flight. Well, that meant I was going to miss our youngest son, Benjamin's, track meet. So she burst into tears. As soon as she did, I said, okay, goodbye. And I went to the rent-a-car place, got in the car, and drove four hours to Savannah, arriving at four in the morning, got a couple hours sleep, and got to the track meet. I just needed the reminder. I needed Ben, the youngest, neglected, overlooked. I needed to be there and I'm I'm glad to be there. I didn't want my children to grow up resenting the church for taking their father away from them. And I didn't want my wife to be embittered because she was rearing her children alone and without me. So one thing that I've not done, and I'm thankful that I can get away with it, is I don't go to committee meetings. The Elders run the committees. Let them run them. And let them report to the session. I don't need to be at every committee meeting. That's for them to do. I can't be at every meeting. If I'm at every meeting, I can't, I can't be the husband to my wife and the father to my children. So pretty early on, I just quit going. I told the session, I'm not going to any more committee meetings or I'll be out every night of the week. I'm not going. And thankfully, they agreed. And so that's been basically my practice. So I get to be home for dinner, and I get to be at their games, and I'm able to hold on to my family, realizing, as I'm sure you appreciate, lose your family and you lose your ministry. At least for that pragmatic reason, you, you, you compromise the life of the family, you will not be able to maintain your ministry. And then lastly, be vigilant about all of these things. Uh, the church can get off track in a hurry. Protect the peace, the unity, the purity, and the fruitfulness of the church. With vigilance. There's no guarantees tomorrow, even if things are healthy and well today. Okay, we have a few minutes for questions. Questions, comments, rebuttals? I said I like being on my feet. Yes. book of the Bible most enjoyed preaching Matthew? I love Matthew's gospel. Um, I love the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, um, be anxious, do not be anxious, um, do not lay up treasures in heaven. I love the Sermon on the Mount. And the close second would be John's gospel and the I Am's. Um, um, the multiple, the multiple, mul- multiple perspectives from which um, that which Christ accomplishes is uh, presented in John's gospel. By, by the way, I've preached almost exclusively the gospels and acts on Sunday morning, Calvin being the example of that and I think that that was wise. That's your broadest congregation so that's what I've stuck to almost exclusively for 28 years. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Acts. Yes, in the back. What helped your life most, whether those early years to- Having five children and staying out of the politics of the church um, i'm s- sort of serious about that uh, she doesn't uh, she stayed out of the politics of the church, and I think what helped her more than anything is i didn't come home and tell her anything. I kept a lot from her, and she was a lot she 's a lot younger than I am, and um, I just felt like that she didn't need to be burdened by a lot of what was going on. And so as much as, in fact, it happened over and over and over again that one of the wives of an elder would go up to her and say, what do you think about thus and so? And she'd come home and say, why don't I know about, you know, so-and-so asked me about this and I don't know anything. And I said, well, because I don't think you need to know. And I so I tried to hide a lot of things from her. Hide's kind of a pejorative way of speaking of it, but protect her from a lot of what was going on in the church in those early years because I didn't want her to get disillusioned with the church and with the ministry um, and the behavior of people that were a lot older than she was and ought to have known better. Yes? Do you think that the lifetime long-term pastorate makes sense in the small rural country church when supporting pastor? Bigger, bigger portion, 90% of the because you're having children and health insurance, all that, Well, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I'm not looking at the numbers, but I think, you know, all things being equal, I would say yes. I mean, I think the church will be, all things being equal, the church will have more stability. It will have. Um, It will have less disruption, more continuity. Um, It'll be a stronger, healthier congregation if it has a good and godly man staying at the helm over many years, all things being equal. I think that would affect the income of the church and the tithing of the people and the growth of the church. All those things would be positively impacted by your commitment, and they'll be committed because you're committed. And if you are teaching an ecclesiology in an age where there is no ecclesiology and you're you know, you're, you're emphasizing the importance of the church, that that um, they'll be more and more committed to the life of the church, not just being committed to Christ, but to the bride of Christ, his church. Other question? Yes? As you said, when you address a serious issue of conflict in the church from the pulpit, do you do that by addressing it as a statement? I had just finished Mark's gospel, and I was starting going to start a series on Acts, but I sort of jumped a little bit into Acts where they replaced Judas. And so I preached on the importance of settling, I think I called it settling the leadership question. So they replaced Judas to, to get the leadership in place. No, I know what I called it, poised for revival. To be poised for revival, you needed to have the leadership question. Acts one leads to Acts two. That'll preach. And when I got to the end of the sermon, that's when I said, You gotta fire me or follow me. And then the next week I started this series on Acts. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other Yes. Savannah is is not a Bible-belt church. Savannah is not a Bible-belt town, is what I meant to say. Um, Savannah is coastal, which is more cosmopolitan, more liberal. There's a large homosexual community in Savannah. It's been mostly underground up to this point. They call them the Bachelors. Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, if you're familiar with that book, there's a lot about that dark side of Savannah, um, Dr. Baird again said, uh, and believe it or not, encouraging me to go to Savannah, said it was known as the graveyard of ministers in the Southern Presbyterian Church because um, young men who grew up in the Bible Belt, Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia, um, would go into Savannah and would not understand the worldliness of Savannah. There's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small evangelical. Uh, um, influence um, there was nobody doing the John MacArthur thing verse by verse. Nobody in the city was doing that um, uh, the, the, the downtown episcopal churches dominate the city and the leadership of the city um, and consequently when i when I got there, number one, they told they, they, the word spread around Savannah that I was a charismatic isn 't that hilarious? I was a charismatic okay number, then it went from there to being that I was a cult, leading a cult, that I was the reincarnation of Jim Jones. And then later, then in 1991, I think it was David Koresh, you know, and the whole Waco thing happened. And I had a member sending out you a know, memorandum that, that there was another David Koresh at loose downtown Savannah. So it's, it's, it's not, it's a difficult, it's more like the Northeast, not quite that bad, but it's more like that than is the rest of the South. Yes. Can it speak to the connection between the pastor and the pastor's piety, personal poverty, and then the with uh the health of the congregation? Spiritual health of the congregation. Well, I guess the pastor's piety, I don't understand how if you are not if your soul is not being fed uh through your own um Scripture, meditation, um, and prayer life. I don't understand how you can feed the congregation. I don't see how if you are not constantly getting fresh insights and inspiration and enthusiasm and urgency and fervency from your own study of the Word, I don't see how you're ever going to be able to pass that on to the congregation. If you're not zealous for holiness... I don't see how your congregation is ever going to be zealous for holiness. If you're not burdened for the lost, I don't know how you can transmit burden for lost souls to the congregation. So I, I think it's, it's central, it's vital. Um, did you quote McShane earlier? My holiness is my congregation's greatest need, or something to that effect. I believe that. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes? Um, given a on discipline, discipline. Yes. I almost uh, sank the ship on that, but um, I didn't have a, a session behind me on a matter of church discipline in the early years and had a very rough go of it uh, because of that. But now we have a wonderful session, very devout, very godly men. And we do church discipline, and I think it's vital that we do. And, you know, the way I always explain it is, you know, a number of years ago, Texaco was accused of being racist. And there were documents that emerged that showed racist attitudes. If Texaco, in response to that, did nothing, the world would have concluded either that Texaco condoned those attitudes or thought they were unimportant petty, and could be indifferent about them. So they had to take action against those who had expressed the racist sentiments. I think that's the way it is with the church. Either we're saying that we're condoning, when we're talking about notorious moral behavior that is public, we're not talking about Gestapo tactics, you're peering into windows. When, When behavior becomes public, if the church doesn't, doesn't uh, distance itself from those attitudes or actions by either rebuke or suspension or excommunication. It is saying to the world that we are condoning it or we, we're indifferent about it or we think that these things are, are petty and unimportant. And so we blemish the name of the church, but especially the name of Christ whose church it is. So it's, it's, I think it's vital but very, very difficult for us in the early years to get that concept across. Even with the very godly people, some, with some of the more godly men in those early years had just had a real difficult time with that concept. Yes? How frequently did you um, preach Old Testament books? I did a lot of Sunday night um, and preached from Genesis through... Esther, straight through. Um, And then Daniel and a couple of the minor prophets along the way. So a lot of the Old Testament, but rarely on Sunday morning. Again, thinking that that's when I had the most immature congregation, um, the, the most for whom bringing in the Old Testament would have been confusing and difficult to grasp. So the Gospels were, I think, a lot easier for for that broader uh, congregation